Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we delve into the history of men's magazines, from their sophisticated beginnings to the launch of Playboy. Also on the show, the remarkable comeback of printed maps. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, we look back at the history of men's magazines. An impressive six-volume collection released by Taschen covers the 80 years of the genre, from the first fetish magazines to the sexual revolution. It's all in there. To tell me more about this cultural exploration, the great Diane Hansen, who is also the sexy books editor for Tarshan. Diane Hansen, what a pleasure to have you here on The Stack. I'm just reading your amazing kind of collection of books here for Tashin, The History of Men's Magazines. But before we go into this project, which I think is fascinating, I want to talk about your job title. I think you have one of the coolest job titles in the world. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's incredible. How long have you been working for Tashin? And tell us your title as well. <laughs> I am the sexy book editor for Tashin. And this title was given to me by Benedict Tashin when we first sat down after knowing each other for several years. When we first sat down to discuss me joining the company, he said, and you will be called the sexy book editor. <laughs> And it's it's really, it's because, you know, just German translation of things like both he and I agreed that erotic is an annoying word, <laughs> that most things that are called erotic, which people say, why aren't you called the erotic book editor? Because most things that are called erotic are not sexy. <laughs> That's a very good point, actually. And, and how big is that sector for Tashin? Because... Honestly, you know, there's iconic books, you know, the big book of pennies, among, among others. I, I think it's such an important part of Tashin, just as a customer. But in terms of, of business, is that something that really kind of worked for, for Tashin in a way? You know, it's a small percentage. It's probably only about 5% of what Tashin publishes, but it is huge in the minds of the public. And it has had a huge impact on branding Tashin, on creating what we know Tashin to be. Because also in our first meeting, I was a little worried coming from 25 years of making men's magazines. I was worried about transitioning to art books. I thought I was going to have to forget everything I knew, everything that I had done before and somehow become arty. And Benedict said, no, I want you to do exactly the kind of stuff that you have been doing up until this point, And we will not change the quality of these books at all. Many other publishers, if they have sexy books, 
they hide them under some kind of sub department. They won't put their big successful company name on them. They make them more cheaply. They distribute them differently. And he said, we will make our sexy books with exactly the same quality and exactly the same pride as we make all our other books. I like that word you said, pride, because even some other publishers, perhaps they will try to intellectualize a little bit too much. And that's that's fantastic, the word you said. And this project must be special for you because it's, you're, you're rightly said, you, you worked in that industry for, for quite a long time. What was the first actually magazine that you worked, first men's magazine? The first one was the most extreme one. It was the only hardcore one that I did. I was... 25 years old. I had ended up in a little industrial town in Pennsylvania just by strange coincidence where I met someone who was doing advertising for a man who owned a string of sex shops, adult bookstores, as we call them in the U.S. And while doing this man's publicity, he was asked to make a magazine for this guy. Hustler had just come out and they both were working in some way for the mob and so they had they had connection to the same underworld figures and he felt if larry flint could do a magazine he could do a magazine but he didn't know anyone to do it so he just asked his publicity guy and that guy asked me i had no background i was a respiratory therapist at a local hospital and we just took it on and we learned as we went and we made it a hardcore magazine called puritan because the adult bookstore owner had had a little newsletter that a little thing he printed and you know handed out in his his sex shops called Puritan. So he wanted to use that title. And we made this hardcore magazine that basically sold in sex shops. Well, and it's interesting that it's called Puritan because, of course, the collection of of, of books ends in 1979. And it's interesting. I don't know. I think we are living through a little bit of a puritanical phase. But what's your view on that? I mean, I I think you're kind of the expert here. So uh, do you see some of those imageries in in the newsstands? Would you see that today? I think it would be quite difficult, right? Well, of course, there are very few magazines left. Everyone has moved online. In 1997, this began. You know, my magazine, the magazine that introduced me to to Benedict, that he, he was a huge fan of this magazine in Germany as a young man, was called Leg Show. And it was a fetish magazine, lingerie, feet, female dominance, transvestism, all kinds of fetishy things. And our our sales were going up, 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 up. And then in 1997, we lost 10% of our sales. We're like, we don't understand. The next year, we lost 10% more. And then we found out this was happening to all the magazines because the internet had arrived. And on the internet, anything could be shown. There was no way to track it down. So suddenly there was this move away from soft core imagery for men's magazines and gay magazines to hardcore material that couldn't be tracked down and couldn't be controlled online because the internet is international. So 
this moved heavily there. Some magazines tried to use hardcore, like the American magazine Penthouse went to hardcore. Still, it didn't improve their sales because when you had the internet, you could watch in private. You didn't have a paper magazine that you had to hide from your wife, that you had to hide from your kids. Suddenly, it was all ephemeral. You could just look at digital images and shut down the computer and walk away and no one would know. And this led to the current age that we're in now where Gen Z, you know, this generation of, do you have the same thing there, I'm assuming? Yeah. Gen Z, people in their late teens to their mid twenties, they are the first generation that grew up with ubiquitous online pornography. And they, on average, started viewing it at 11 or 12 years old, seeing the hardest, most extreme material. And this has had a huge impact on this generation that they are having less sex than any known generation in history. They are far more prudish. We are seeing a 4,000% increase in teen girls who want to transition to be males. And when I start asking some of these people online, what effect pornography had on them, I'll get answers like, I can't talk about it. I was so traumatized by the first porn I saw. And I think that's helping to drive this as well, that a 12 year old girl sees an anal gangbang, you know, sees girls being choked, sees some of the stuff that is easily available online. She doesn't want to grow up to be a woman and to feel like she's going to be having to have this kind of sex. So it seems that our new Puritanism, and there is something called Puritines here in the US that they don't want to have sex. They disapprove of other teens who are having sex, but it's not that they're not having any sex. There's just a lot of masturbation going on so that they are looking at pornography and masturbating and pulling away from actual sexual contact with other people. That's really interesting. And, and in some ways, it's a shame as well, Diane, because, you know, looking at an amazing collection starting in the 1900s, because something had, has been lost as well, because the illustrations, there was, there's something quite beautiful about it, actually. Oh, there, yeah. there, there's a level of cheekiness. And, and I love the humor, you know, the taglines on the magazines. It, it, it's just amazing. And, and I think the book is a celebration of that as well, right? We, when I first got into the business in the, you know, in the mid seventies, this was before AIDS when sex seemed to be safe and fun. And we thought, you know, sex and love equated. We had so much fun thinking up these titles for magazines and the taglines and all the jokes. It just seemed like the whole world was going to become more open, more loving, more sexually accepting. We, we never imagined really what was coming in the 80s. And the effect that, that AIDS, HIV, and I worked in New York, you know, which was kind of the center of, of AIDS in America, 
we never imagined the effect that this was going to have. Seeing our friends, seeing our colleagues, all the people we worked with getting sick and dying, and this, the way it sort of triggered the second wave of sex negative feminism that was blaming pornography on violence and crime, rape, and tying it into the AIDS epidemic it just all started crashing at that point. And this is a reason why we stopped the books at 1979. Mm. I was going to ask you precisely that. And another thing, perhaps in the 60s, in the 70s, this was quite big business, right? Because even the more traditional magazines like Playboy, let's say, they had big budgets. I mean, I remember even oh, yeah. the Brazilian Playboy, they take you know, the model to Tahiti, you know, and to do a photo shoot, mm -hmm. which is completely different from the more recent decade, which is slightly cheaper. And so I guess it was quite big business for those magazines, right? Not only Playboy, but other, other ones as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the top three in the US were Playboy, Penthouse and Hustler. And yeah, they had huge, lavish budgets, even Leg Show, where I was working. I mean, we were selling at our peak, just maybe... 175,000 copies a month, but we were buying our photo sets outright. We were paying $5,000 per photo set to own them. And I was buying designer clothes to dress the models. <laughs> I was buying Manolo Blahniks. I was buying, I mean, yes, I was, I was going to the Manolo Blahnik sale to buy the shoes, but still, the money that I spent on wardrobe, and I still have this wardrobe. When I left, I took the wardrobe. Unbelievable, you know, renting locations, renting huge painted backdrops to do photo sets. It was a wonderful, lavish period. And then it all just ended, you know, in, in the late 90s when the sales started going down. Then like, okay, you got to back up, you got to reuse things, you have to, let's put a set we used five years ago in there. And of course, that's just horrible for any editor to hear. No, no, don't reuse stuff. It just shows that you're going down the toilet. No, no. <laughs> and you know, of course, you know, there are a lot of the, the US here. I mentioned Brazil as well. But were there any countries that were quite avant-garde when it comes to, um, to men's magazines? And, and that's one of my favorite things as well, because there were a lot of magazines I had no idea existed. There's Skandal, which I, I think is German. I love the cover. Yeah. Any, any countries that were really kind of, I mean, good and special when it comes to men's magazines? Well, the interesting thing that I learned in collecting all these magazines is that there are many, many, many countries in the world, but there are only a tiny number of countries that actually make men's magazines and have done historically and mm. provided them to the rest of the world. The first was France, you know, France was full of style and French attitude and they started with the the follies, the, you know, where the can-can oh, yeah. off and then topless performers in the 1880s and that was what made up the content of the very first magazines and they were beautiful, elegant magazines. This was followed by Germany. Germany had a different aesthetic. Germany had nudism. So German magazines were entirely naked from the very beginning. And when we got into the Weimar period, they became very, very politically influenced and kinky, extreme. Magnus Hirschfeld, who is famous 
sex researcher. He made the first gay magazine in the world in 1899. He made very sophisticated magazines in the 1920s. And then you got the US, which was kind of came along after World War One because soldiers had gone to France <laughs> and soldiers had encountered Germans and the French and the Germans carried pictures from these magazines with them. They often carried the magazines with them so that, you know, soldiers would find them on a body. They would go over the body and they'd find, whoa, look what I found and keep it. So they brought this back to the US and they began making magazines. And these were really the big three. As you moved on, England started making these very strange little fetishy, not very nude, English style inhibited magazines. But for the rest of the world, it was Argentina that really stepped up and made the most interesting, sophisticated magazines in the 1920s into the 30s. And this had to do with the international citizenship of Argentina. That's amazing. Argentina, that's a country that perhaps people wouldn't imagine that they were a precursor in, when it comes to men's magazines. And, and Diane, of course, we, we, we discussed a little bit about the new Puritanism. Tashin, I mean, they're quite brave in a way. We're talking about pride. When you suggest a project like this, do they say just yes, Diane, just just run with it? Or, no, never. <laughs> or, 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 or there are a lot of conversations about it, you know, but because it's quite interesting, especially as a woman, what would you say about pornography? You know, there's a lot of questions that people say today. Of course, I mean, you, you've been in the industry, of course, there's no question about that. But today, in this new puritanical world, how is it to launch a project like this? You know, it's, I can't really speak as a woman. I mean, I do not represent mm. women. I love women. I like my female friends. I'm very supportive of women. I have a feminist mindset, but I am aware that my life experiences and my long, long, long career doing sexual materials for men have taught me things about men, especially heterosexual men, but gay men too, that most women don't know and don't understand. I had some therapy back in, oh God, the 80s, I guess. And I talked about my magazines with the therapist and I don't know, somehow we got into men liking to see panty lines through women's clothing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Being able to see where the elastic is. And she said, well, this is, this is surely because they know that the women don't are humiliated by having them see it and that they like to see it because they know that it embarrasses and humiliates the women. I'm like, no, they like to see it because it allows them to imagine what the underwear looks like. So I know how men think and it's made me more empathetic towards men. I understand that males regard sex differently than women do, but it's not all misogyny. It's that they have 20 times more testosterone. 
And so they think about sex more. They are triggered more by, by sexual things, by sexual thoughts, by sexual images. And it's very hard for them to understand that women don't feel the same way. It makes them more vulnerable to all kinds of fetishes. Fetishes are almost unknown among women and they're very, very common among men. But this was a thing that I was always trying to explain to my readers at Leg Show. They, they'd say, well, surely there must be some woman who gets off on wearing pantyhose the way I do. And I'm like, no, I've never met a woman who would put on pantyhose, become sexually aroused and have to masturbate. It's, there's just differences. There are differences. And I don't look at this new prudery and say, oh, we have to figure out a way to change it. I just look at it with curiosity. That's what you do. You're an observer, right? I mean, that's why I am an wrote. observer. I am an observer. I am an observer and a documentarian so that I look at it. I think about it. I try to determine the causes. I try to write about them and inform people about them and try to correct misinformation. Amazing. And then just, uh, you know, as a final question, because, you know, I'm, I'm generally curious, I don't know, are there any interesting men's magazines or sex magazines these days? Or do you think it generally, no. it's, it's not <laughs> happening? <laughs> nope, I don't know of any, sadly, and I don't pursue them. I always found and if you've, have you looked at volume six in this series? Yes, yes. Okay. I found that stuff always the most fun and the funniest because of the, this was the material that was made exclusively for sex shops in the 1970s mm. and was just over the top and crazy and any subject could go in there, you know, blood on the tracks, a magazine about Definitely. menstruation, uh, the big baby magazines, you know, just this very, very, very extreme material is always what was most fun and interesting to me because it revealed the, the margins of sexual fantasy. But I don't think these things even exist in sex shops anymore. You know, it's all just become kind of generic and boring because people find what they find online. I'm doing a huge kind of whole sex catalog and encyclopedia of sex. And one of the categories that I covered was keywords on Pornhub. Do you, you know Pornhub? Yeah. Yeah. I've... Okay. Keywords on Pornhub. So <laughs> this went in and I found lists of, of keywords, but then I went and, and just tried all these different keywords and found how common they are and how many hits they get. And that is the equivalent of those sex shop magazines, the things that people will type in and the things that people are interested in seeing. That is the equivalent now. Thank you very much, Diane. A pleasure talking to you. And Diane Hansen's The History of Men's Magazines is out now, published by Tasha. Finally, on today's show, when was the last time you went offline and traveled with an old-school printed map? Well, it seems that the median is making a comeback, to the delight of aficionados around the globe, like me.
According to the latest figures by Ordnance Survey, the National Mapping Agency for Great Britain, the sales of custom-made maps exploded in 2020, with an increase of 144% compared with the year before. And that's not where the trend ends. It more than doubled the number of maps it produced in 2022 than in 2021. For more on this, we spoke with Nick Giles, Ordnance Service Managing Director for Leisure. Well, I think there's there's something you get from a printed map where that you can't get from a five-inch screen. To be able to actually spread that out over the kitchen table and just see the great landscape in, in much more context. So it enables you to just just um, observe a greater area and to help you plan and engage with your outdoor activities. But do you think also, people are coming up with new users for maps? Um, there's a lot, a lot of people use maps for decorating even. So, you know, we've always had a, a passion and a love for maps that kind of inspires that sort of spirit of adventure that we, that, that, that sits within us all. So, you know, even maps that we've seen maps used for wallpaper, we've seen maps used um, as, as, as just display pictures. We see maps that sort of create memories of, of um, adventures that you've had or trips that you've had or experiences that you've had as well. Who is, who is the clientele? Who are those buying maps? Printed maps. So we, we sell around about 1.7 million every year. So it's it, it, there's, there's a lot of there's still a high level of demand for our for our paper maps, and that that does range from um, people that are just going to an area and just exploring, so your casual tourist, through to actually a seasoned mountaineer, your hiker, who are really looking for to get off the beaten track to go out and explore an area that may not be on your general tourist routes. But it could be anybody, really. I mean, there's there's so much wonder you can get from a map. And, you know, every map contains thousands of adventures that you could have. So um, it's, a, it's, it's a great tool for just experiencing and getting more active in the outdoors. Do you have bestsellers? What is, what is the hit of 2023? We have a lot of bestsellers. Uh, the national parks around the UK are always the, the bestsellers at the moment. Snowden is topping the, um, the poll, so um, a lot of people actually going out and, and trying to climb that. It does vary by different times of the year, but Snowden and the national parks are always, always some of our, our, our strongest sellers. Now, Ordnance Survey has a standardised system of symbols, for example, for a church or a pub. I'm wondering... Do you ever need to change those symbols or update the way you show things on maps? We update our maps 30,000 times a day. So maps, the map is constantly changing. The symbols we do update from time to time. Um, so, for example, more recently, we've put in things like skate parks, areas where you can go kite surfing, solar farms. And the symbols are there just not only to, to show you what you can do in a particular area, but also to help you aid you in navigation. So if you can see a solar farm in the distance from a hilltop, then you and you can pinpoint that on the map. You get a really good orientation in terms of where you're going and where you're heading. And are you still on the right track? But yes, we constantly update all areas. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about the renaissance of, of vinyl albums, for example. Do you see similarities with what's happening with maps at the moment and, for example, those vinyls? Um, I think there, there probably are certain similarities, but as I say, it's, uh, we, we used a lot of paper maps during lockdown um, as we were just trying to explore a local area. And you know, the, the, we've seen a real uptick, particularly from younger audiences. Um, traditionally, it's, you know, for those that have grown up only with paper maps without digital mapping. 
Um, they've always used paper maps and that's uh, and they tend to use that. But what we've seen over the past um, past few years is a real renaissance amongst the younger user, particularly using paper maps alongside a digital application. So you can kind of see where you are on the ground with the with the beauty of the uh, of, of a little pink dot on a, a mobile application through to actually then transposing that and just trying to get a broader context. So there is a bit and there's there's a bit of nostalgia that comes with them as well. Um, but, you know, like vinyl, there's that sort of classic sound that you get from vinyl with paper. You know, there's the classic sound you get from scrunching up a paper map and just the tactile feeling really helps um, brings it bring it into context. And now, Nick, considering the increased appetite of, of the audience who want to get a hold of your maps, can you come up with any new products? So we're constantly looking at new products and constantly testing new different different ways of actually sort of consuming mapping from from to sort of guidebooks that that combine the the physical paper map and a physical product with a digital experience as well through to we have a fully customizable map so you can put your own photo and your own titles on the front and really make and, and also pinpoint that um, accurately in terms of choosing your center for spot so if you you ever get to that point where you spread across two different maps and you have to get two we don't do that on purpose by the way um you can actually site center it and so that, things like that through to actually maps that can, can contain routes that you can mount on the wall framed on canvas so we're constantly looking for for ways in which actually mapping content which we love we would we're all in the survey um uh can be consumed by um by our customers and by the explorers across the world now finally nick a bit more personal question for you i'm do you decorate with maps yourself, as you mentioned, some people do, or would that remind you too much of work? <laughs> it doesn't remind, and much to the, the disdain of my wife, I have a rather extensive map collection, as I'm sure you can imagine, and maps sort of dotted throughout from, and the weird and wonderful from just those novel place names, some of which are a, 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 a bordering on the lines of indecency um, that sort of sit across the broader British Isles through to adventure maps, through to sort of old historic maps of an area. And you can see how an area has changed. So, yeah, I love maps. Um, my wife is learning too as well. Thank you very much, Nick. And I agree. Printed maps are such a delight. Every time I travel, I tend to buy a local map. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Adam Heaton, if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpnmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, please listen to us again at monaco.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Travel sex with sexiness. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. I'm not your sexy, you're not my sexy.